Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. to episode 78 of The Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. The weather has turned. It's horrible weather. Don't you think it's... all the radiators I know, I know. 24-7. winter. I know. I can't keep up with it. It's been so warm, It's making my skin so reptilian. Yeah, it's ghastly, isn't it, the skin at this time of year? I know. Mottled and dry. The Nivea, I've got out the Nivea. You know it's winter when it's the It's so comes cold. Out. Why is it too cold? It is very cold. Look, I'm not even wearing a coat. That's ridiculous. I know. Why? Because I'm running home. Look, I've got... You just need a, to run home in a... Run- sports bra just you on your to, desk. <laughs> you need to wear a um, gilet puffer that runners wear. I know. I do need one of those, actually. Grotesque. And maybe one of those little woolly headbands. Yeah. A woolly headband with the high-low on it. Yeah. Embroidered. I would love that. Um, I had a real moment of being so grateful for being a freelancer and working from home today because I was sitting at my desk writing the high-low notes and I had a pensive stroke of my chin and I realised there were two new hairs there. What? How, when was the last time you plucked? Mm, probably a few weeks ago. Are you joking? I have to do it every day. And I ran upstairs and I got out my tweezers and I plucked them away and I came downstairs and I thought if I was in an office... I wouldn't have been able to do that. I might not have had my tweezers on mm. my person. Mm. The light in the loo might not have been good. There might have been other people, you know, maybe superiors mm. that made doing that activity awkward. You could always see, I think, in meetings when I worked in an office when a woman sort of pensive, pensively runs her finger, runs her finger her across chin. her chin. I just wanted to It's be a like, really unifying experience. It is, but you that. just see a woman. It's like all the tube I see women do it and it's like, hey, and they sister. stop and then reverse and go back. I know what you're doing, sister. Do you know what? Actually, this weekend, Farley introduced me to a natty new little gadget that she has called the Touch Flawless. Oh, you see these um, advertised on, like, those weird... JML, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't for me, I must say. It wasn't for me. What does it do? Because I like to fully extract the hairs. Yeah, me too. Because otherwise, I I don't like feeling any sort of fuzz at all. I like to see the root. I like the root. I like feeling it completely (laughs) extracted. We'll get, you'll get your turn in a minute, Charlie, and you can tell us all about your chin hairs. Um, and I, yeah, I like the satisfying, I just like, I like completely smooth chin. Yeah. Um, but this isn't an extractor, it's, it's just like a slicer. Oh, absolutely not. So for it me. doesn't, but, but she really, she swears by it. The only so, thing. So it's basically like shaving. Yeah, that's what I think about without, without the rash. But the only thing that I have found really effective, I think I brought one in for you to try once. He did, it wasn't for me. The springy coil one. Yeah, do you use those? I, it reminded me this weekend that I need to buy some more on eBay. Don't use them anymore. But, but they were so good and then you roll up the coil. I just, like, like, I just like some tweezers. Too time consuming. I'm a busy lady. I'm a, I'm a you know, modern woman on the go. Um, <laughs> modern woman on the go. <laughs> Title of your next book, that doll, uh, Modern Women on the Go. So the cabinet's playing musical chairs on speed. We mm. have yet another Brexit secretary. Can anyone keep up? It's all the news is talking about is the various iterations of Brexit and why Theresa May is failing. And I'm so fucking bored. I'm just I'm glad so that now. Dominic Rabb has gone back to the Clapham Junction station Sainsbury's in his flip-flops to go <laughs> pick up some steaks for dinner. That's a little callback joke to a past episode. Yeah, you know if you're a devout fan of the Hilo, <laughs> if you get that. Who's reprinting all the business cards? Or do you think they just have... Um, do you think they're all just written in pencil at the moment for the I new Brexit know. secretary? Disgruntled civil servant. <laughs> also this week, it was revealed that if you are unlucky in love, it's all your mother's fault. I don't know if... That's a new revelation. I think Freud may have come up with that one first, I must say. Where did you find that research? Foxy Bingo? 
front cover of the Times. Right, dickhead. That just that just screamed to me of one of those weeks on the Highlow where we're Obscure we're short Friday. on news stories, so we default to hey Foxy now, Bingo's latest poll. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I am never short of news stories. Speaking of this week, David Hockney's portrait of an artist pool with two figures became the most expensive piece of art ever sold at auction by a living artist, clocking in at over seventy point three million pounds or ninety point three million dollars in an auction in New York last week. Barbecued bugs are going on sale at Sainsbury's this week, the first major retailer to sell edible insects. And apparently, pet owners choose cats that are like themselves. Researchers from the University of Liverpool found that if you are dominant and impulsive, then your cat is likely to be too. My best friend is going to love that. She always says that my completely psychotic cat, who took eight months to brave the cat flap, is like me. (laughs) Indy and I have never really bonded. I have to say, I've tried really hard because I love cats, but she's always just too busy every time I come round. Don't you think? I think that only endorses this study further. Then, given that I am also very busy, I do things that busy. She is like you. She's so preoccupied. When I see her, she'll like slide past my legs, and she's just running from pillar to post. She's got too much to do. She can't even stop for a second just to have a catch up. I'm working on it, Dolly. She's not, but I am. <laughs> I love that Hockney painting. I'm yeah, not surprised it fetched that much. I feel like we're having such a rapid, renewed interest in Hockney, particularly amongst our generation. And I wonder why that is. Other than his work being incredibly beautiful, there must be a reason why I keep seeing his kind of colours and the shapes of his work everywhere at the moment, particularly in interior design. I've got two theories. Go on. One, firstly, is his use of colour. Mm. Lots of other young artists and interior designers and... Um, decorators are I think really inspired by his use of colour so that I would say is one reason and the other reason I think is there's a big trend towards people in art at the moment yes if you think a lot of the art certainly that me you and our friends are buying a lot of the up-and-coming artists like Hester Finch Alexa Coe Juliana Byrne Luke Edward Hall Krista Ramagrevy they are all drawing uh, mainly women and Mm. naked women Luke Edward Hall does a lot of men as well so it's it's people it's the personable so that's so interesting you're so right and I wondered there must be these trends don't happen for no reason there must be yeah why are we seeking people yeah anthropological desire that we're looking for faces wherever we go I blame it do you know what whenever I feel like whenever I have people have conversations like this at the moment there's one answer and I'm going to give it to you I blame technology Oh my god, thank god I thought you were going to say Brexit and I was like, <laughs> next! <laughs> that too. Today the BBC released its BBC 100 Women list of 2018 and I learned about so many amazing women doing great things, including Helen Taylor Thompson, a 94-year-old former spy and charity worker who was part of Winston Churchill's secret army, sending coded messages to spies during World War II and then she went on to set up Europe's first AIDS hospital. Wow! And Haven Shepherd, a 15-year-old student and swimmer from Vietnam who is a Paralympic hopeful having survived a suicide bomb set off by her parents what a cool list it's a really interesting um, list I thoroughly recommend a peruse I've got some uplifting news about a fellow broadcaster 73 year old Deke Duncan has been doing a radio show with just one listener since 1974 he's never had a license as a station so has only ever beamed it from the shed in his back garden into the living room through a speaker for his wife to listen to and he's never had anyone else other than his wife listening to it um and that hasn't stopped him from producing he does all his own jingles and he calls on friends to cover shifts to ensure the stringent dawn tonight evening schedule I love them humouring him when it's just the wife. I know. And finally, a local BBC radio station found out about him from an interview that he did um, in the 70s, I think. It was like some archive footage where he was hailed as having like the smallest audience in Britain. I'm going to say he'd done an interview with Vice. No, no, that is very Vice, though. Um, And a BBC radio station, a local BBC radio station, has finally given him a one hour special to do over the Christmas period. And he said for the first time in his life, he's speechless. Oh my god! I wonder what BBC radio station is it? Just it's called Three w- Counties. Okay, I'm going to try and tune in. Is it I mean, I'm thinking London? Christmas special guest. I got to say, 
I'd love to eat Duncan on. I really, I think he's a maverick. I think it's so cool. Make but you happen, know what? Donnie. I actually think it's like such a wonderful story in a climate where everything that we do and numbers. every skill that we do is is about acquisition of numbers yeah. and people knowing how good we are. Yeah. So I think it's like, I've been thinking about this a lot recently with my unbelievably shit guitar playing. I, um, oh, I did record. It's beautiful. I did record a little. I sent Pandora a picture of me last night with my guitar saying... Dolly's favourite procrastination tool is to take to the guitar. I said night in with my boyfriend. But um, I've got some clips to send you. But I was thinking Good. about... So I've just um, started looking for a new guitar teacher. And I was thinking it's like such a rare corner of my life where I want to get better at something... And, not shout about it. But I literally don't want anyone to hear it. I don't want... It's not for any kind... It's not to make me money. It's not to look cool. It's certainly not to look cool. It's not to gain friends. If anything, I'll probably lose friends the way that I'm going with it. But it's just for the joy of an activity. I know. It's, with the high-low, actually, sometimes it's it's quite hard for us to separate what's a, what's a hobby and what... Because inevitably, mm. a lot of the things that I do for enjoyment or relaxation do then fuel another episode. Mm. So I sort of commodify that, that moment, don't I? Mm. Um, and I think you should get Deke on the show. I'm going to try and tra- I'm gonna track him down. He seems like such a nice man. And I really want to meet his wife as well. I think that's so lovely. That I she... mean, the story is made for you. I'm surprised you haven't bought, like, the TV rights. Do you know what? Oh, God, that would be a great TV show. There we go. That's my next project sorted. <laughs> What's in ye old mailbag this week, Dolly? We had as ever some wonderful emails we got a lot of responses to our discussion on Iceland's banned Christmas advert Mm -hmm. and our brief discussion of palm oil production in last week's episode most of the comments were about how it's a very complex issue and a couple of people raised the point that the Iceland ad oversimplified matters many recommended the same article which makes the case for sustainable palm oil rather than a ban on it which we will link to in the show notes this email summed up many of your thoughts very well. Whilst I'm really pleased that deforestation and the links to global supply chains are being brought to public attention, it worries me when there is a knee-jerk response that gets a lot of coverage without equal coverage or consideration of the implications. I think the major win here is that it forces us to think about where our food and other consumer goods come from. The journey from raw commodity to final product is insanely complicated, but anything that increases our understanding of supply chains and sustainability and forces us to rethink our insatiable consumer appetites has to be a good thing. We also received some really informative and thought-provoking emails about Anthony Ekendeo Lennon's story and how that compares to Rachel Dolezal's um, story. This was from a listener called Ganisa. Panda, do you want to read this one? I am an African-American expat living in France. I often hear the talk of fluidity of identity, which is so important in this era. Though when it comes to racial identity, I believe fluidity is less so. Having a fluid racial identity is one right that belongs categorically to white people. As a black woman, I never realised I was black until someone made me feel it, feel that it was inferior and less beautiful. I never realised I was black until someone made me feel it, feel that it was inferior, less beautiful. In Lennon's case, that happened. Neighbours gawked at him, made a spectacle of his existence because of his skin. That was not the case for Dolajal. She tanned herself, wore traditional African hairstyles presenting herself. There is a privilege that Rachel Dolajal gets that neither I nor other blacks get, the ability to claim heritage that is not ours. If I were to go around saying I were a white woman, people would laugh. I wouldn't get a book deal or a Netflix documentary or a press tour to describe my experience as a white woman. And when Dolajal tires of being a black woman, she gets to be white again. Although she is now more of a pariah, she always said that she was black. Now she's experiencing the black woman's existence of being cast aside and criticised. That doesn't mean it's right, but this is her most authentic experience to date. Very interesting. Yeah, I know we've covered Rachel Dolezal before, but I did think that was a really interesting one to read out. And the same from Alana talking about the differences between Rachel Dolezal and Anthony Ekendayo Lennon. And she suggests that um, Lennon has more in common with Sandra Lang than Dolezal. He cannot pass as white, and so he has probably experienced racism like any other mixed-race person. He therefore has lived experience as the race he presents at, white parents or no white parents. Thank you so much for those messages, Alana and Ganisa. We always really enjoy hearing from listeners, particularly listeners who can share their own experience and their own viewpoints um, that weren't ones that we had drawn in the show. 
And finally, I got lots of lovely Irish listeners who messaged to let me know that I can buy Tato's in London. Well, thank God, because there aren't any crisp sandwiches here today, listeners. I forgot. I'm so sorry, but I found out... What have you been doing anything, Dolly? I found out both (laughs) Charlie and Pandora's favourite flavour, salt and vinegar, and I'm going to go get salt and vinegar Tato's this week and bring you crisp sandwiches next week. Although everyone has told me that I need to assemble them a table. Because if I do it... <laughs> they go sog. They go soggy. And that's the opposite effect you want from a crisp sandwich. Anyway, back to Tato's. Emily says the cheese shop by platforms 15 to 19 in Victoria Station has them. <laughs> and even included a picture of them on the shelf. That's amazing. And Anya says an Irish shop in Tooting called Mandy's has them. And a lovely listener on Twitter let me know that Sainsbury's on Camden Road stocks them. So I'm going to head there straight after this record and pick up a packet. Question is, would you have gone to Tooting though if they didn't? How much do you want to give us? Yeah, it's sandwich? on the northern line, so maybe I would have made a day of it. What have you been enjoying this week, doll? I have been enjoying Eva Wiseman on pornography for GQ. Yes. Uh, did you read that? Yes. It's so Where good. Where she shared the statistic from John Ronson that erectile dysfunction has increased by a thousand percent since 2007. Which is the advent of free porn streaming. Yeah. So there's absolutely no way that those two things aren't connected. connected. Uh, And she talks about... The reason I really like this is, I think, talking about pornography, which is a massive problem, the state of pornography now and the effect that it has on both men and women and public consciousness and attitude towards sexuality, it is a huge problem. I find it minimising when people say that pornography itself is the issue rather than the gaze that it is made through and the way that it is made. I think that to watch pornography is a very, very natural inclination. And I think the problem isn't pornography. It's the very, very small range that we're shown and the impact that that has on um, how we think about men and women and sex. So uh, the reason I thought this was such a good article is what she's advocating. It's the Catelyn Moran school of thought that we... We, it's not that we need to ban pornography, we need to have... So you can't ban pornography. No. So it would be like a pointless endeavour. Yeah, no, but also I think it, I, I don't think watching pornography in in of itself is unhealthy. Is unhealthy. No. I, I think it's the Catelyn Moran school of thought that we need free we need free range pornography. We need ethical pornography. We need pornography. Grass-fed porn. Grass-fed porn. We need porn that's shown... Um, through a female lens we need female pleasure driven porn we need wibbly bits and bushes exactly we need all different body types all different types of sex and this is what this article said and I'm not going to paraphrase it because Eva Wiseman's a genius and she said it much better than I ever could so to quote she says rather than banning porn how about having more more porn from as many perspectives as possible more acknowledgement that sexual health does not stop at an STI test. More time spent hacking away at the cultural insistence that women are either virgins or whores. More conversation about sex at a younger age. More stories of sex from a greater variety of viewpoints. More nuance, more women, more acknowledgement that while some people spiral down the internet and crash, many others turn to technology, not just for release, but to explore love and desire from an increasingly lonely place. It's too easy to demonise internet porn or detach it from the real world, but doing so pushes those in trouble further away. Perhaps today, with everything laid out in front of us, young people could be educated about the ordinary and odd and sometimes profound truths of sexuality. Then those who choose to could enjoy online porn the way it was intended, as a corner of sex rather than the whole world, a brief, diverting, unrealistic fantasy. I couldn't agree more. So... I would like more inventive narratives than naughty stepmom and rampant cheerleader. (laughs) Also on sex, Indian Night on sex education for girls in response to MP Jess Phillips' claim that young women need to be taught about their own orgasms in school. That was her most recent column and I I loved it and couldn't agree with it more. Um, And she talks about, really relating to Eva's piece, actually, she talks about how female pleasure is so misunderstood and still so unprioritised, not just in porn, but in dating and, I must say, even the most loving and respectful relationships. It's still such an enigma. It's never taught in sex education. No, and, and the problem is, is that I think women are so conditioned to believe that it's so unprioritized and it's not the point of sex. The point of sex is ejaculation for a man that it means that a woman can go, I think her whole life 
thinking that the sex that she's having is totally normal, where her body and her desires are just not factored in at all, in in a weirdly consensual way. Um, So I think we really need to, uh, you know, debunk this and unpick this. And um, she talks about how she thinks that not only do we need... There, there are kind of two opposing problems that that we have with porn. I think with porn culture is that because it only shows male desire and male fetish most of the time, it means that women's desire or fetish becomes shameful because it's not given space because women are so passive in the sex act in pornography. So they, women carry shame about their sexual desire. But what India Knight also argues is women are, are also not allowed a space for revulsion and that women should, because what you're watching in porn, we're just told is the absolute default of the desire. Every, the way she describes it is like, everyone should want to have anal sex within two minutes of meeting the local handyman, or whatever. And also they should be coming like a train after 10 seconds of it. Like that there's no space for a girl to say, to realise that, that that's not for her. Like that there should be space for revulsion as well as for no shame. I just think we've got so far to go in understanding that women have their own gnarly and disgusting and twisted and you know transgressive sexual desires and that equally they might not and, and they you want to see some of them you could watch sally forever <laughs> do you know what as we were talking about that i, I was, was thinking like, about the nose fucking i was <laughs> pandora's been introduced to sally forever in the last week and she is delightedly disgusted with it, it that's exactly the word delightedly disgusted <laughs> it's, it's actually really not even for the faint-hearted it's not one to watch I'm, while you eat i've also just realized that whenever you and i now talk about sex I, it just sounds like joan and jerry <laughs> <laughs> i'm really glad that the sunday times published that column you know it was in the opening pages of, of the magazine a national yeah you know serious magazine um and it was a very progressive column and Mm -hmm. you know she didn't hold any punches i I think it's i'm as impressed to see them running it Mm -hmm. as i you know essentially a paper that is run by men in their 40s 50s 60s Mm. um as i am glad that she wrote it Mm. i think those are all good and and she also said as well i think that so often when we talk about how we need to re-examine the female experience in sex we forget that this is for the benefit of men as well Mm. Like this, which is what she touches on the the pressures that are that are put on men from the pornography that that we have available to us now. That's shit for everyone. That's particularly it's shit for women on the receiving end, but it's an enormous amount of pressure for men as well. And I think you know, going back to Cat Person, which is that great New Yorker short story which was published a year ago. For me, that's what that story was about. It's about men and women being in a tangle of lies to each other and how can men know and fully understand about pleasure and consent if we're living in this kind of um expected performativity where everyone knows the roles they have exactly exactly so it's it will be freeing for everyone as Mm. we debunk Mm. this so i could just read more and more and more about this and i loved both of those pieces I've been enjoying Homecoming on Amazon Prime, which is a drama starring Julia Roberts as a caseworker at a facility called Homecoming that helps soldiers transition back into civilian life. I'm only two episodes in, but I really like it. Do you know, a lot of my friends who work in TV drama said to me, this is the best drama that they've seen in a really long time. Better than Informer? Yeah, sadly. You haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it. But as in, this is the the thing that I'm hearing from quite a lot of TV producers is that this is really, really a cut above the rest. And it is, it, it does feel very different to any drama I've ever watched in it's that. It's lofty praise. I'm going to check it I've out. I've just realised it sounds like I only ever talk in superlatives. It may not be the best drama made in recent years. It may just be a very good one and that's fine as well. But I'm just saying that that's <laughs> why I decided it. to watch it because a few people I really trusted told me to watch it. Anyway, um, <laughs> it, it does feel quite different in that it's, I think it's the most cinematic TV series I've ever watched. There we go. Another superlative on the house. Um, the music, the uh, it's like a sc- cinematic score even the credits, everything about it, the way that it's shot, it feels uh, just epic and very compulsive. And Julia Roberts is just so, so good. So two episodes into that and already loving it. Definitely going to check that out. It's very you. Uh, although I, I 
already regret saying that because the minute I say something is very you or not very you, you take umbrage with it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not remotely contrary. <laughs> I listened to Lena Dunham on Dax Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, which a few Hilo listeners have told us to listen to, actually. It's the first episode I've listened to. Um, and I actually found it because I was missing Lena Dunham. I feel like I haven't listened to an interview with her for a while. And I, she's one of those people who I learn so much from just listening to her muse on things. And I know she really divides opinion. I happen to really love Lena Dunham. I think she's been an enormous force for good culturally. And it's a really powerful interview. It's a long interview. She talks about the trauma of her hysterectomy and, and the mm. the choices and she talks about the trauma of her fairly recent hysterectomy and the journey that that led her there very very reluctantly and it's so sad when you hear her talk about it she wrote a beautiful piece for vogue yeah American very vogue. powerful about six months ago was it I yeah think you can find it online yeah and that and that was only about a year ago mm. that she had that hysterectomy and she'd just broken up with her partner as well so that must have been a pretty overwhelming time yeah and she also reveals for the first time in this episode and talks about it in depth with Dax Shepard and it's it's poignant that she talks about it with Dax Shepard because he's also um sober I think and in recovery he's definitely in a fellowship but she talks about how she's six months sober from her addiction to benzos which are a prescribed tranquilizer um and in that kind of reflection she talks about how she became hooked on them and she also just reflects really on the last extraordinary seven years of her life and fame and how she was nowhere near prepared for it and how at 25 the way that she phrases it is that if it were to have happened now then she's a woman who knows how to look after herself who has really good boundaries who gets good sleep who keeps her body and mind in check but she was like it's a 25 year old girl of course she didn't do any of those things so then you throw her into this position of being the voice for generation and and her kind of holding this mantle of representation and everyone um analyzing her artistic and life and political choices and she said you know she just couldn't handle it and I've I've never heard her speak but I suppose because she's been so in the thick of it and it feels like she's just moved into mm. a new phase of her life I've never heard her speak with such clarity about the enormous fame and notoriety that was thrust on her at such a young age and all the various controversies and pressures and anxieties yeah, that she, went with that how does she feel about like her, do, do, has she come out the other side of all those controversies or do they sound like they still weigh very heavily on her I think something that she said in this interview, I have to say I'm only actually halfway through because the interview's about two hours long, um, but something she says that really struck a chord with me is she said she is someone who, that you and I are very like this, Pandora, she's someone who has always been very plagued with guilt and she's always trying to keep everyone happy and she's always, throughout her life, she was always trying to uh, control the variables of other humans and control... Oh God, so the kind of controversial fame she's had must have been... Well, this is what she said, you know, when you're someone who desperately... I hate her. I know she's been tremendously successful. Don't get me wrong, it's a success we could only dream of. But I, I don't... I wouldn't want that. But she said when you're someone who wants to all the time control what people are saying about you and how they think about you... Um, and she said, you know, her whole life she wet, she made such a conscious effort. And my God, do I know this feeling of constantly trying to make sure that people only thought good things about her and are saying good things about her. And she said, when you get catapulted to that level of fame... Oh, it makes me feel a bit sick. You have to accept that not only are there people who know you who probably don't like you, there are a vast, vast number of people who don't know you who are talking shit about you. And can you imagine that anxiety... For a person with that disposition, the level of anxiety that it would inflict... What's it like to listen to? I don't know if I can, or is it like a... It was... It, it's like... It's... An intense listen? It's moving. Yeah, it's moving and confronting and intense, and it just makes me feel enormous sympathy for a person mm -hmm. who, yes, has definitely made mistakes and some bad choices, but fuck me, haven't we all? I, I just... Mm. I think that she is somewhat... I think it's amazing. This is what I get from listening to that interview. I think it's amazing that she has come out the other side as seemingly down-to-earth okay. and okay and together um, as she is, because the more I listen to the stuff that she's been through, um, 
and what that trajectory was like, the more I think I would have just come apart at the seams, basically. So, um, yeah, it's it was a great conversation, and I'm just so excited to see all the future things that she's going to create. And I still think we're very, very lucky to have her. I also enjoyed Elizabeth Gilbert on the TED interview with Chris Anderson, who's the head of TED and a really, really, really penetrating, brilliant interviewer. I think this is the first interview that Elizabeth Gilbert has done since her partner, Raya, died. For anyone not familiar, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the global bestseller Eat, Pray, Love, where she detailed falling in love with a man she then married. She then left the marriage to... um, begin a relationship with her best friend yeah her best friend um raya who has very sadly recently died yeah and she went into that relationship knowing that raya had um a terminal illness and she is quite disarmingly honest about the whole experience actually because she's been fairly fairly honest i think she's a woman who lives with a lot of integrity and very truthfully even on her social media channels i think that she's quite admirably open and doesn't feel kind of shame about various choices that she's made in her life so it's kind of amazing to listen to her talk about and actually the interviewer said did you feel a pressure having written this book that many women feel has like a fairy tale ending and they're very invested in that relationship did you feel a pressure or like you were disappointing people when you publicly but that reminds me of holly Bourne. yes her exactly book. how when do you the like fairy now? tale falls apart yeah the better expression and she said no I don't and she said and I had full faith that my readers only wanted happiness for me and it was such a lovely thing to hear she said she got absolutely no abuse in response to her new relationship with Rhea and she said that people were just supportive and happy that she was in love so uh, that was lovely to hear she talked very movingly about death and what it's like to see someone you love die, to be with them at the moment of death. And grief, she talks about in the most poetic and beautiful and vivid language. I've never heard someone talk about grief in metaphors that were more tangible. It just is a testament to what an incredible, incredible writer and articulator she is of the inner landscape and life of a human. I don't think there's anyone quite like her in terms of making those emotions accessible and understandable to others who aren't going through it or who've been through something similar are you a big fan of eat pray love loved it do you think if you're not a massive fan of eat pray love you would still find the podcast yes because she doesn't actually talk about um eat pray love that much she talks about subsequent books um just because the book was quite divisive wasn't it yeah i know i just loved it i i I liked it i did i found it a little bit indulgent and woo at times but that's me. I'm very woo-woo. <laughs> You're, not woo-woo. You're not woo-woo, but you like woo-woo things. Well, speaking of woo-woo, the clip that I'm going to insert is one of my favourite bits is when she's talking about the concept of magic and the belief in something... That is speaking of woo-woo. <laughs> the belief in something higher or unexplained. And I'm very much of that camp. Uh, and she says that she doesn't use a belief in magic or supernatural or unexplained or spiritual to contest logic or analysis or intelligence but that it's a faith and a curiosity that bolsters her understanding of life i happen to prefer to live in an enchanted world but i don't require that anybody else does if Mm. you're empirical right left black white everything can be explained by science worldview helps you and you can be as creative as you can possibly be within that. And you're generating an enchanting life through that. Then you have what I like to call not a problem, you know, but, but if it's not working for you, then, you know, come, come and sit in my room for a minute. What have you been enjoying Panda? I read a proof copy of Mothership by Francesca Segal, who has written two books, including the awkward age, which was a, um, very popular book that came out last year I think it's a beautiful memoir about her twin girls who were born 10 weeks early weighing two pounds each I fully immersed myself in this memoir it obviously brought back memories of my own birth a day I like revisiting hugely but it also educated me about the shadowy other world of birth that of severely prem babies and of course reminded me of how incredibly lucky I am Seagal's babies are in the neonatal intensive care unit for 56 
36 days, so almost two months, she had to pump her milk day and night in the pumping room. For a while, her babies were in different hospitals. It's a beautiful, poetic book about a different kind of motherhood, or at least a different start to motherhood, that you don't hear as much about, Mm. where mothers in her own words, are prevented from mothering. They can't take their babies home. They have to feed them through an incubator. They're allowed to hug them once a day. They're very much told by nurses when they are and aren't allowed to mother. And yet their bodies are in, or her body was in, full mothering mode. I just wanted to read an extract from the book of a bit I really loved so you can get a taster. And she's at home a few days after giving birth, but her babies are still in hospital. I'm fascinated and appalled by the remaining slack pouch of flesh where a hundred hours ago I housed our daughters. In the dark, I touch it gingerly. This is where they should be, beneath the covers, beneath my skin, palpable and distant, drawing slowly closer to us like a ship from the horizon. Where now do they believe themselves to be? I have visited the mothers of newborns. I have seen their fatigue, their distraction, their longing for just a breath of liberty from this new consuming tyranny. But I remember too that when a helpful friend takes the child from their arms, that stunned and softened look will sharpen, replaced by one of hunger and an urge to snatch back the baby they have only moments ago offered with relief. I have seen their jealousy, a fleeting separation, seductive and intolerable. When I am apart from my daughters, my physical pain becomes almost incapacitating. I wonder which is real. It's fading to a meaningless background hum in their presence, or now, like this, it's raging grip in their absence. Mm-hmm. It's wow. such a wonderful I haven't thing. thought of it like that, but that about that kind of primal instinct. Do you feel that when I grab Lady? <laughs> Um, no, now I've obviously got very used to not holding her at all times because because I'm working four days a week. But I know exactly what she means. At the beginning, it's so all-consuming, all exhausted. But the moment you don't, you're not holding your baby, you miss you miss yeah. them desperately. Yeah. And actually, when Zadie goes to bed, I said to Ollie the other day, I wish instead of her having to sleep for twelve hours at night, I could like choose to sprinkle those hours throughout the day because as soon as she's gone I probably creep back in every hour that I'm still awake to you know adjust something or um just sniff her and Ollie always goes did you wake her up um so it's it's a beautiful book and I know I always say this I sort of shouldn't have to say this disclaimer but I don't think that you have to have just had a baby to really love it I think it was particularly piquant or poignant um for me because I had but it's just like an exceptionally well-written memoir. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book's published by Penguin in June 2019. Sorry, I know it's a real wait, but I have to tell you about things as I read them or it will fall out the other side of my head. Also, while we're on this subject, I don't know if I told you this, I got an email recently from a man um, who wanted to... Not a man, Dolly! Oh, sorry, I said that with a weariness. <laughs> Withering disdain. Uh, saying that he finds it smug and irritating whenever I talk on the Hilo or on social media about the fact that I've got a proof of a book that's not out for a few months and it's like I'm showing off to everyone. For anyone who holds that opinion, which I'm hoping is very few of you, as someone who's published the book, I know it is a bit frustrating when you have to wait a few months before a book's come out but by no means a Pandora and I being smug we're helping with a campaign of a book we really believe and building excitement around it so that's a massive part of making sure that books are sold so that's all I would it's like to say it's also kind of unavoidable because we're sent brilliant books as proofs they go onto the pile by our book we pick them up because we love an author I'm not going to not mention them until the month they go out because A, I'm not that organised and B, Amazon, Hive, Waterstones, Penguin you can pre-order through all of those things As I say, I think it's a very, very slight-held opinion I really hope it is because I was was quite upset by that email but I just (laughs) wanted to flag that because it is a really important part of building momentum for a book's pre-publication and Pandora and I are really passionate about publishing so we're very happy to be a part of that process and I remember how excited I got when people were pre-ordering your book it's an important part of um, purchasing well a book that is out now um, is popular by Mitch Prinstein I think it came out last year I read it for an essay that I just finished writing and I found it such an interesting book I wanted to recommend it here Princeton is a neuroscientist and psychologist in America and he offered a new take on likability which I think is always seen as something negative it's the idea that if you are preoccupied with being likeable that you're bending yourself into a, a false you mm, there's a lack of integrity yeah in order to make people like you more and he says that actually likable people tend to be popular because 
they reflect values which are important to others. Likeability, he says, leads to inclusivity because you tend to work to make people feel part of a herd, which makes them feel valued and it makes you as the byproduct popular. He said the only time that likability is a bad thing is when it is used for status. Mm. So in our Warholian world, Mm. everyone's Mm. bidding for status. And that, he says, is an empty, flimsy aspiration of popularity and of likability. It's a really interesting book and I recommend it. It covers our lifelong desire to belong to a clique, from playground to parenthood, why popularity is so seductive and why leaders aren't always boorish bullies. For example, Obama, very likeable, very good leader. So I like that, a new take. Mm. I absolutely adored the episode of Elizabeth Day's podcast, How to Fail, with Tara Westover. Tara wrote the hugely successful book, Educated, which I recommended in our back to school episode of the Hilo in September. I read it during the summer and it's a book about um, Tara becoming estranged from her fundamentalist Mormon family in order to seek an education, first at Brigham Young University in Utah and then latterly Cambridge. Tara has such a unique perspective on things. Even the way she talks is so unusual and I know Elizabeth felt the same. She's measured, she's very thoughtful. The way she speaks is entirely unusual. She doesn't hesitate or ask rhetorical questions or use intensifiers she doesn't revise herself or self-edit or prevaricate I wanted to play an excerpt because she's such a unique mind and Elizabeth just like the listener is you can tell entirely fascinated with her and I was too I felt like I belonged in my family I always felt like I belonged in my family I've been raised by them I agreed with them about everything a full membership in that probably the only group I've ever felt like I fully belonged to The reason I left wasn't because I didn't feel like I belonged. It was because there was something I wanted on the outside. I read a super interesting piece on The Atlantic, which really chimes with your reading material this week, Doll, called The Sex Drought, which I think you would really like. We read a lot about the decline in sex in millennials and some of Gen Z, and it tends to all conform to the idea that, I mean, as you were saying earlier people particularly men watch too much porn and screens are killing real experience but this piece offered lots of fresh bits of research and coverage writer katie julian spoke to several experts who suggested that the rates of childhood sexual abuse have decreased in recent decades and that abuse can lead to precocious and promiscuous sexual behavior so actually the decline in that has in some areas led to a decline in sexual activity some people can that be true well i thought it was quite an interesting point of view and another point of view that i also thought was interesting she said that some people today may feel less pressured into sex that they don't want to have thanks to changing gender mores and growing awareness of diverse sexual orientation so i think those are two both quite positive yeah yeah i mean all i ever hear is is that basically we don't know how to be intimate and we don't know well, that's, how to... You know. But that's all I heard, so I yeah. thought it was actually quite no, interesting that, to hear a positive take. Yeah. Um, less positive, fairly shocking statistics um, were about what she calls Fertility Challenge Japan, which um, is something of a case study in the dangers of sexlessness. In 2005, a third of Japanese single people aged 18 to 45 were virgins. By 2005... 43% of people in this age group oh were virgins. God. And the share who said they did not intend to get married had also risen. Lots of interesting stuff in that piece, actually. And we will link in the show notes. I lastly absolutely adored the Michelle Obama interview in the British edition of Elle by Oprah Winfrey. What a coup for mm. the British glossy disclaimer Mm. i am connected with Elle as a contributing editor but i think that's a feat for anyone quite frankly and i would be flagging that regardless of who it was the conversation was so revealing and brilliant it's often not the case with someone immensely famous michelle reveals that they sought counseling for their marriage um as michelle had to learn to exist in a in a relationship where Barack's mission would often come first. She says what's different about her and the reason why she thinks so many people ask her about her authenticity is that she likes herself. How often do you hear a woman, particularly a woman of colour, feeling empowered enough to say, I like myself? I particularly enjoyed the bits where she describes the difference between her and Barack. She says she is a box checker whilst he is a swerver. And I just wanted to read out a bit. 
Oprah says, You write about meeting him. I'd constructed my existence carefully, tucking and folding every loose and disorderly bit of it, as of building some tight and airless piece of origami. He was like a wind that threatened to unsettle everything. You didn't like being unsettled. Oh, God, no. This moment cracks me up, says Oprah. I woke one night to find him staring at the ceiling, his profile lit by the glow of streetlights outside. He looked vaguely troubled, as if he was pondering something deeply personal. Was it our relationship? The loss of his father? Hey, what are you thinking over there? I whispered. He turned to look at me, his smile a little sheepish. Oh, he said, I was just thinking about income equality. (laughs) That's my honey, says Michelle. And I love that. That's my honey. She writes beautifully. Becoming has just landed on my desk this morning and I am so excited to read it. It's being translated into... 31 languages in its debut edition. And on the subject of Michelle Obama, we have a very, very exciting national exclusive, a clip from the audiobook of Becoming. In this extract, she describes one of her first nights alone in their new home after moving out of the White House in 2017. She had the evening to herself, everyone was out, she made cheese on toast and sat outside in the garden with the dogs, obviously still with armed guards less than 100 yards away, giving her the first moment to to sit back and not only reflect, but think about what was coming next. I was thinking instead about how in a few minutes I would go back inside my house, wash my plate in the sink, and head up to bed, maybe open a window so I could feel the spring air, how glorious that would be. I was thinking, too, that the stillness was affording me a first real opportunity to reflect. As first lady, I'd get to the end of a busy week and need to be reminded how it had started. But time is beginning to feel different. My girls who arrived at the White House with their Polly Pockets, a blanket named Blanky, and a stuffed tiger named Tiger, are now teenagers, young women with plans and voices of their own. My husband is making his own adjustments to life after the White House, catching his own breath. And here I am in this new place with a lot I want to say. I love that anecdote. In Elle, she explains that she had never been allowed to make herself toast. Someone would always jump up and go do it for her if she made advances towards making a snack. And she said even opening a window that night was really momentous because they were never allowed to open the windows in the White House for security reasons. And when her dogs are outside on the porch with her, she said they'd never heard another dog bark. And that night they did, and it just completely threw Mm. them. Just so many tiny, elemental, but awe-inspiring things to consider if you haven't been allowed or haven't witnessed those Mm. things. Mm. Opening a window, hearing a dog bark, making a piece of toast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about Mrs. Hinch. Sophie Hinchcliffe, a.k.a. at Mrs. Hinch Home on Instagram, has 1.3 million followers despite only starting her account in March of this year, is a cleaning influencer. Cleanfluencer? Cleanstagrammer? <laughs> Need to work on this. Who posts videos of her cleaning her Essex home. Dolly and I were both baffled and riveted by the Mrs. Hinch phenomenon and decided to probe further in the name of journalism. I was on her Instagram today and I am fascinated by her commitment to the colour grey. Yes, serious tonal blocking. Absolutely everything is grey or silver. It's like a dressed set for a sort of suburban space-age film. I watched a few videos and I found the filming quite hectic, although I did enjoy... You don't need to do your sink every day, Mrs. Hinch, before she then replies to herself, you kind of do, mate. And then Whitney Houston kicks in with I Am Every Woman and she disinfects the sink with something called star drops. She then says, 
disinfected it, time to cliff it. And then Respect by Aretha Franklin comes on and she gets out the Sif, which she has named Cliff. The Star Drops is called Paul. Oh, yeah, she gives all the cleaning products its own own name. name. I'd go there for the music alone, frankly. She's also really glamorous. Occasionally she flashes to her own face and she's got long, lustrous hair extensions, flawless skin, long painted nails, a full set of falsies. It's kind of a domestic bliss it's kind of like when i was watching the stories uh, this morning and it is it's not just cleaning it's the dog and the cook making soup it's kind of like a home the hinches like it all don't they it, she calls all her followers the hinches i think that they're, it's like a it's like a domesticity porn kind of i wouldn't naturally follow mrs hinch as i find people doing banal things really boring but they are hugely popular these type of like everyday activity videos Mm. i remember the influencer naomi smart used to post videos of her making her dinner chopping it up cleaning it eating it sorry chopping it up cooking it eating it putting the plates away and i watched one once and i found it so fascinatingly dull but people love it it's like when people post 20 instagram videos in a row about their day Mm. what they've been up to what moisturizer they're using i mean it's the concept of big brother people adore the banal it's soothing and i think it's i wonder if it's part of asmr which stands for autonomous sensory meridian response a physical sensation of pleasurable tingling which i learned about from the tash dimitriou episode Mm. of adam buxton's podcast that you recommended last week doll where she talks about her obsession with slime which totally baffled adam and that watching pictures of people making slime had got her through her recent breakup i wonder if mrs hinch offers the same kind of catharsis yeah sort of sort of like hypnosis it's like a weird i think it's a couple of things i think it's voyeurism into the everyday that we've always been obsessed with culturally but i think we're even more obsessed with now that we live in such a highly glossy augmented Mm. time i think an insight into the drab feels even more of a rare treat and treasure than an insight into the glamorous and i also think it's any excuse to be glued to our devices i've realized that when my social media usage is not at a good point and i'm on my phone too much I just look for any excuse to stay hooked in and nothing is more sustainably long-winded and distracting like menial chores and inconsequential blabbering. Her videos feel very retro, not the aesthetic. Her house, as you say, is all plush, silver and shiny chrome and she wears hoodies. But I mean the sentiment. In a way, it's great that everyone's obsessed because it means that a woman cleaning her home and feeling validated by it is not something that it's ironic women have to yeah. do anymore because women are allowed out of the kitchen to yeah. do other things it's not the 1950s so mrs hinch cleaning is a choice rather than a demand yeah. placed upon her on the other hand are we fetishizing a tale or a stereotype as old as time that society is desperately trying to move past a woman cleaning wouldn't it be more revolutionary to see mr hinch cleaning i'm not so sure i think some people just like cleaning i That's don't true. my dad does Farley does I think some people get huge enjoyment out of it as an activity you know regardless of their gender although I have said this before on the Hilo and I've got in trouble for it and lots of women emailed to say it's a constant battle at home with their boyfriends or husbands because it's it's an obligation that is by default foisted onto the woman of the house but maybe it's just because I've never really lived with men so I don't know I just have to either clean or hire a cleaner because I love a clean house, I just don't get much satisfaction from doing it. I've never had such an overwhelming response to a question I've posed to Twitter than when I asked, can someone talk to me about Mrs Hinch? Mm. And I received so many replies, here are some of them. Watching her feels like your house is magically cleaning itself, says Jess. (laughs) Abigail says she is addicted. Hannah thinks we love it because it generates an illusion of being in control in an increasingly terrifying world. I I think it's that. Mm. I'm convinced that it's that. I think it's about control. And I do think it's symptomatic of a quite dangerous, imperious Western culture of control freakism. Does it go too far? Jette says, Mrs. Hinch has deep issues about cleanliness and control. Compulsive cleaning can be a part of OCD or OCPD. Incidentally, a new hand-washing app has been said to reduce compulsive behaviour by 21%, according to Cambridge University, Mm. which is interesting. Sufferers watch a 30-second video of someone washing their hands and it curbs um, the compulsive behaviour. That's interesting. Uh, I do also think that people too often conflate OCD with an obsession with cleanliness. Or just a 
a penchant or a, a, yeah. a, like, a like or a love of cleanliness. And I know two quite severe sufferers of OCD who have absolutely no compulsion at all related to cleanliness or germs. Mm. I think that what we're talking about here is a kind of control fetish that's that's come from our need to control image, aesthetic well-being and, and routine and public image. I mean, does that mean Mrs. Hinch has deep cleaning issues or does she just have a Monica Geller type habit that she's enjoying sharing with the world? and no doubt making some dosh out of. I mean, she's with Digital Talent Management Gleam, who rep YouTube vloggers like Zoella and Tanya Burr. She's been on This Morning and spoken to publications like The Mirror, sharing her cleaning tips. There's so much scope for product endorsements for her, because I imagine it is not a crowded market. How many influencers want to endorse SIF? Dear old Kim and Aggie have probably been completely booted out by her it's such a small talent pool there, there won't be space for all of them i don't think i still find it odd calling it sif it will forever be jiff me Jif-ty. too people are going crazy for the chemicals she uses though emily calls it horrifying while scarlet finds the chemical shaming bizarre as do i i'm sorry but don't most people use chemicals to clean i'm not saying we should and i know there are alternatives but i do slightly think let's pick our battles Scarlett also says there's some underlying reclamation of women's guilt over cleaning not being feminist but also all women still being the ones who clean I, I'm not going to be shamed about my chemicals I love a Dettol spray no one will ever shame me out of that sadly <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with Mrs. Hinch. I think people like her videos because they're therapeutic. It taps into that pleasurable, satisfying feeling, almost like when you see someone on telly doing a really big, genuine smile and you find yourself Mm. smiling back at them. Do you ever catch yourself watching it telly alone and you're just going like this? (laughs) I do it a lot. There are masses of very weird videos out there that make people feel really good and perhaps cleaning isn't even the weirdest. There's been yet another diversity issue in entertainment, this time in the very white, very male arena of live comedy. Last week, comedian Lolly Adafopi tweeted a poster of a Christmas charity comedy gig organised by Harry Hill, the lineup for which consisted of 24 comedians' faces, all of whom were white. Under the image, she wrote, Someone's dreaming of a white Christmas. The reaction to the joke was divided. Most of the comedians on the bill publicly supported Lolly, also claiming they had no idea of the all-white lineup. Frankie Boyle said, Comedy often doesn't do well enough when it comes to representation. When people point instances of this out, we should support them and learn from it. Sarah Pascoe wrote, I'm sorry if you've had backlash. I don't know how this issue is going to get resolved, but it's so good that you've raised it. Everyone I've spoken to who's involved with the gig is upset this has happened. It's not okay." And Roisin Conaty wrote, I'm really sorry if people attacked you for pointing this out, Lolly. In 2018, no matter how well-intentioned, a bill like this looks awful. I've spoken to the organisers and said as much. It's not your responsibility to flag this stuff. It's our comedy community as a whole. Chortle, an online comedy magazine, ran a piece with the headline Comedian's Anger Over All-White Comedy Headline. After many people highlighted the inherent racism of defaulting to the angry black woman stereotype when Lolly's tweet displayed no anger whatsoever, if anything it was hilariously casual, Chortle changed the headline. Lolly herself upholds that she wasn't angry or starting a racism row, quote-unquote, but rather calling out a lack of diversity with a joke. A subsequent statement from her reads, I think a gig can support a charity and be diverse and have a great lineup. It's called multitasking. And if diversity isn't important to you, then that's fine. That's absolutely your prerogative. But I'm still going to call it out when I see it. Good intentions shouldn't close you off to conversation. I would never want a charity support to be affected. And so I've donated to Action Duchenne and anyone who has retweeted or liked my post is obviously welcome to as well. Bye. The comedian Jason Manford wrote a number of tweets to Lolly defending both himself and the organiser Harry Hill, saying he just said he would do a charity gig and now he's being called a racist. Lolly replied saying, no one is calling you racist, Jason. He's since deleted his tweets, but Lolly has faced a huge amount of accusations of racism herself, accusations that she's taking money from a charity or somehow damaging a charity, and also she's just received a lot of plain and simple abuse frankly on the subject of it being for a charity gig writer Ortega Uagba tweeted I gather Lolly Adafopi has received criticism for pointing out the embarrassing lack of diversity on this lineup, given the show is in aid of charity to be clear that doesn't exempt its organizers even a little bit from criticism what have you made of this situation Pandora 
I thought the joke was really funny. It was pitch perfect, short, wry, on the nose, a light joke about something heavy, yeah. just the way comedy should function. She wasn't calling anyone racist, for God's sake. God, the I want to divorce the internet sometimes. I know I we know. wouldn't really have a show without it. <laughs> I don't know what we talk poetry we've enjoyed from the 30s. <laughs> God, you'd love that. We should do an internet-free high-low one it. week. That would be... Oh, God, what a calm week that would be. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Anyway, back to Lolly. <laughs> back to Lolly. I think the most important thing in this story for me is the nature of the responses to Lolly's tweet rather than the tweet itself. I just feel phenomenally sad for her. It was such a reminder to me of the shit that people of colour have to put up with all the time Lolly is such a good comedian and commentator her humour is so dry and laconic and she uses it as a really powerful tool to highlight the enormous disparity between the white and black experience anyone who knows her work would know that she is known for doing that so effortlessly And also, anyone in 2018 would have every right to respond to that poster with outrage or irritation or anger, but that's not what she was doing. She was calling out a problem with her own sardonic wit. And I can't imagine how stressful it must be and how censored one must feel as a person of colour to know that even when you just voice a fact that relates to race, you are accused of being angry or starting a race row. And that off the back of those words being put in your mouth, the hurt feelings or bruised egos of men like Jason Manford is suddenly the most important thing in the conversation. As I say, it really reminded me that freedom of expression for a woman of colour just does not exist in the same way that it does for white people. It's also really curious because speaking about race is a lot of the time, from what I've seen, like quite a vital component of um, comedians who are of colour, like Ramesh Ranganathan, mm. like talks extensively about what it is to be of... Sri Lankan heritage. I don't know why she saw... Uh, yeah, I, I don't really understand why she, she's suddenly not allowed to make mm. an observational race that, as you say, like... I mean, it was pretty light. It also just reminds us that people do not know how to take a joke anymore. What the fuck are comedians allowed to make a joke about? I was watching Russell Howard's new show this weekend, actually, and it's very woke. It's... Have you seen any of it? Mm, no. It's all about politics. It's women's rights, for example. He spent a long time on those. I liked it. I liked that he was spending time making jokes about important shit that doesn't concern him at the expense of... Um, people who have done, you know, shitty things, you could tell that he's really invested and that he really wanted his comedy to move with the times and and to have integrity. But I did wonder how much of that was because comedians feel forced into being really PC, that any joke they made is, is somehow indicative of some, like, dark part of their personality or their or their prejudice and you aren't allowed to make jokes that are on the nose lolly's joke wasn't even not pc if anything it was calling out the failure of the pc-ness she's she's elsewhere she on the whole the way she's described it to me i interviewed her for a an article about comedy and wokeness and how they intersect oh yeah the piece you wrote for sunday time star yeah and she um on the whole is a big fan of political correctness. Yeah. yeah, she thinks it's a force for but good. But this is what's funny, whole. is that this, it was, if anything, mm. actually. A, a piece of, Ramesh Ranganathan tweeted saying that he had been invited to join the night um, but couldn't make the charity um, gig. Harry Hill also gave a statement saying that other comedians of colour had been asked to join but none could make it. So the intention was not to create an all-white comedy night. But, of course, you don't see the intention unless someone tells you about it. You only see the outcome. You only see the lineup. I don't think Harry Hill and the organisers should be vilified for this lineup. I think it just highlights a problem that needs to be addressed, which is not that everyone's racist, but that diversity needs to be more of a pressing issue rather than a tokenistic afterthought. I think Harry Hill, to be fair to him, has largely accepted that this is you know that this is not okay yeah that he, they need to do better another yeah time. yeah we need to do better that's exactly what it is that this needs to be everyone's responsibility pandora and i are both on such a learning curve um with how we can change this in our in our personal and work choices a number of times we've been involved in campaigns or been booked for panel events and only once the campaign is out or we arrive at the event we realize it's an all-white or totally heterosexual panel both of us have realized sadly we can't rely on organizers to ensure diversity and by doing so we're abdicating responsibility and actually we need to be accountable for that so now both of us always try to remember to ask who else is on the lineup before we say yes to things but personally that hasn't been an inherent impulse for me which highlights my privilege i've had to learn that inclusion often doesn't happen without everyone being cognizant of it 
absolutely been a learning curve as we learn about our responsibility which is that we have to extend our platform that we have here at the Hilo to people who aren't white for people from all backgrounds it's something we take very seriously not just in terms of guests but in terms of the topics we cover and the reading recommendations we make it's something we try and thread throughout the show but I want to be totally transparent here when it comes to booking guests it isn't always easy to make sure we are as diverse as we want to be in fact our next author special was one we were probably the most excited about that we have ever been a huge contemporary name a woman of color but she just cancelled her slot sadly which means we now have four white women in a row for our author specials and we feel really uncomfortable about that but the first thing that we did when we got that news other than feeling very sad is that we had a conversation where we we realized we have to make some decisions to diversify our next guests that we book and not that's not a box ticking exercise it's it's to make our show better yeah to make our show more interesting for for ourselves and for our listeners rather than hearing from people from very similar Mm. viewpoints all the time the show's always been about educating ourselves as much as others and it's a really necessary part of um the privilege of having a show like the hilo which is you know doing pretty well and mm. reaching lots of ears and so it's one we take really seriously it, and it makes us uncomfortable um that we have four white women in a row and I think this makes a point in itself that it is a chicken and an egg situation we like authors of a certain caliber on the show but there aren't enough women of color being published and published to higher claim which means there are less being suggested or pitched as a slot on the high low. Probably only 5% of authors offered to us aren't white, would you mm. say? Mm. Which means less girls are being inspired. And so the circle continues. Yeah, and it, it is often more thought or time-consuming to create a lineup of people, not just talking about race, but a lineup that is fully diverse in terms of age, background, gender, sexuality. But that's only because the default for so long has been to not think mm. about it, which is not only deeply wrong, but as I say, it also just makes for very boring one-note conversation and comedy and art. The point that Lolly is trying to make, I think, is that either it's one of your priorities or it isn't. It's too easy to say oh, well, that author cancelled or that comedian isn't free. So it's just going to be an all white lineup. But who cares? At least we tried. When I interviewed Lolly about comedy and wokeness, she said that that attitude of cursory box ticking for her doesn't make any real change or difference, that people have to truly care about diversity for it to be followed through in their choices. I don't know if I agree with that argument, because what if an organiser is just box ticking, but books someone really awesome who then makes it big and go on, can go on to inspire tonnes of other people? I don't think the intention, as I said earlier, always matters, whether they're booked with good or thoughtless or cursory intention if someone talented is given the platform then they are able to occupy and claim rightful ownership and go on and inspire others i'm not saying that i can't see how it would be considered offensive if you know you are being booked to tick a box but i don't think that it always fails to affect real change underneath her statement on instagram lolly commented i'd also love it if people would call this stuff out themselves if they care about it don't just send me the photo knowing that i'll speak up about it and face the backlash highlight it yourselves and have the conversation so i don't get accused of playing the race card or if you don't care about it at all have a nice day it was a really needed reminder i think to me that we shouldn't leave all this legwork for change to people of colour particularly when they're the ones who receive so much more abuse for it so while I'm sad that the response to Lolly's tweet was so disappointing I'm grateful for its reminder that diversity is a collective responsibility Absolutely and ultimately the support of other comedians and the discussion of this topic by so many people and media outlets will ensure that this happens less and less in the future Thank you very much to everyone who listened to the Hilo. You can email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people find us. Bye-bye. Wrap up warm. Bye. Bye. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.